Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm joined today to chew over the events and announcements of this week by Simon Elliott, head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities. Well, we're going to kick off, as always, by uh, talking about the markets, a quick catch up on what's been happening. And I think it's been a slightly better week, has it not? Yeah, I think that's right, actually. I mean, certainly the first four days of the week, the investment company sector uh, were up in positive territory, up about 0.6%. And actually, that was in contrast to the wider UK market, uh, which was down about half a percent over that period. In terms of the sector average discount, probably broadly unchanged, about 3.2%. But just overall, I mean, the market's preoccupations have not really changed. Clearly, a huge amount of discussion about inflation and how will monetary policy respond. Talk of the UK inflation nearing 5% next year. And actually, some very interesting commentary from Unilever this week in terms of what they're doing in terms of price rises. Also, the market has kept at least half an eye on the comings and goings with Evergrande Group in China and its ability to continue to be able to service its debt. But I think as we discussed last week, earnings really in focus across the marketplace. And and certainly one that caught my eye this week was Tesla's quarterly update. I think they reported record profits and revenue up 57%. So all power to them. Yes, well, as you know very well, Simon, the bull markets always climb a wall of worry. It would be nothing if there weren't a lot of worries out there. But uh, I guess my interpretation would be that... uh, The markets have stabilised a little bit. There was a little bit of sense of doom around last month, but it seems to be getting slightly better. But uh, you're only as good as your last recorded uh, number, so we'll have to see how that pans out. But uh, I agree with you. Interesting to see also there's a little bit of a pickup in gold this week, which suggests that some of these inflation fears might uh, be coming a little more real. We don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Okay, so back to the investment trust sector. Our main focus, as always, and we've got quite a lot of corporate news and, of course, fundraising to talk about again this week. The fundraising goes on. Well, let's kick off by talking about Asia Dragon Trust. That's ticker DGN, which has made an announcement about some tender offers they got planned. Yes, that's right. So Asia Dragon Trust, which is part of the Aberdeen stable, Adrian Lim has been responsible for this one since about 2007. But they announced this week proposals for conditional tender offers subject to its continuation vote passing at the AGM in December. And just to explain, Asia Dragon Trust, in common with a number of funds in the Asia and emerging market sector, has a periodic continuation vote. It's on a triennial basis. And it's quite common to see, as we approach these continuation votes, some kind of liquidity event put on the table. And clearly, for the number of shareholders who play in this sector, particularly the institutional shareholders, it's something that they quite appreciate In the case of Asia Dragon, what they are proposing is a tender offer of up to 25% of their share capital, a 2% discount to NAV, that will be triggered by NAV total return underperformance over a five-year period. And that's underperformance against their their benchmark, the MSCR Country Asia X Japan Index. So this, again, is something that we've seen for a number of emerging market and Asian funds. I mean, including Genesis Emerging Markets, which, of course, is now the Fidelity Emerging Market Fund. They had a, a not dissimilar mechanism running to the end of June this year. And they've said that actually their largest shareholder, which is an outfit called City of London Investment Management, who own just short of 28% of the share capital, have um, provided an irrevocable undertaking to vote in favour of the continuation vote. And in fact, this proposal. 
to kind of dovetail with this idea of conditional tender offers every five years, they're going to move the triennial continuation vote to a five-yearly basis. City of London, of course, was a big player, a significant investor in Genesis as well. So they obviously have a big exposure in emerging markets. So what um, what do you think the prospects of this are? How has Asia Dragon been performing? The answer is it's, if you certainly look over the last three years, which is relevant because that's the kind of period, broadly speaking, since the last continuation vote, it's outperformed. So in NAV total return terms over the last three years, NAV total return, it's up 55%. That compares with 39% for the MSCI All Country Asia Pacific X Japan Index. And in fact, if you uh, go for a longer period, five years total return, it's up 61%. And that uh, reflects an outperformance as well versus 47% for that index. So performance has been good. And I suspect that's part of you know, the rationale for accepting a conditional tender offer rather than something in the in the here and now and the ability to say, well, look, you know, you run this for five years and if you outperform, that's great. And if not, then frankly you have to put up a tender offer. So as I say, this is not uncommon in the emerging markets and Asia subsectors. So let's move on and talk about uh, DRUM Income Plus, REIT, ticker D-R-I-P, DRIP. What's been the news from them? Yeah, so this is a bit of housekeeping, really, just so people are up to date with this one. I mean, we originally talked back, I think in August, about Custodian REIT and DRUM Income Plus, the idea that Custodian Reek would acquire Drum Income Plus with an all-share acquisition. Um, this week, the resolutions were passed. In other words, shareholders voted in favour. I think over 96% of votes were cast in favour. So this thing now all kind of comes to a head. And in fact, I think the scheme is expected to become effective on the 3rd of November. Uh, shares in Drum Income Plus will be delisted the following day. And uh, those shareholders will receive new custodian REIT shares, and they will begin trading on the 4th of November. Are there any implications in terms of that for the rating? Obviously, DRIP is disappearing, but how has custodian been forming? Have the shareholders been happy with what uh, has been proposed? Well, if you look at the rating on custodian REIT, I've got it on a very small discount at the moment, probably about 2% or so. And that compares with an average in that kind of property UK commercial subsector of about 11 12%. So it's not quite on a premium rating, but it's certainly on a higher rating than, than most of its peers. So now we can move on and talk about Fidelity Emerging Markets, that is Genesis Emerging Markets, as was until very, very recently. A bit of housekeeping here as well. They did have a tender offer involved in the proposed acquisition or merger, to call it what you'd like to. What's been the outcome of that? So quite an interesting development, actually. As you say, the 25% tender offer. Um, I think the thing to note here is that 85% of the shares in issue were tendered. In other words, it was uh, significantly oversubscribed. Everything gets scaled back. So it is only 25% of the share capital that effectively uh, is satisfied in terms of the tender offer, which was done, I should say, at a 2% discount to NAV. And ordinarily, that might be a source of, if not concern, but certainly a little bit of eyebrow raising. You know, gosh, there's quite a few shareholders on the register who would wish an exit it might be seen as a not a massive endorsement of Fidelity and this new mandate. However, I think it's worth noting that the shareholder register is very concentrated. So there are about four institutional shareholders that represent 70% or even probably higher than that of the register. So the fact that this tender offer was so heavily subscribed, I don't think you can read too much into it, apart from the fact that from Fidelity's point of view, there's probably quite a lot of work needs to be done in terms of the shareholder base, that I suspect their ambition is to narrow the discount and, and attract a wider following, particularly from retail investors. And they've probably got their work cut out there a little bit in terms of transitioning that shareholder base. 
Yes, I mean, to make the point that part of the agreement, I think, that because these are institutional investors who control uh, a significant proportion of the shares, that basically, if they knew that everybody else was going to be tendering, they would tender more than they actually necessarily wanted to get rid of. You you, you can't be sure about that. But uh, how did the market take all this outcome? Yeah, and what is interesting, well, the discount on Fidelity emerging markets at the moment is probably about 12 13%. So we have seen that discount widen out a little bit over the last 12 months. And obviously, that's the, the period when it was managed by Genesis Investment Management. It's probably averaged about 7 or 8%. So it is actually wider than it has averaged over the previous 12 months. Yeah, so as you say, that rather underlines the point that Fidelity got a lot of work to do, but that was part of their pitch, as I understand it, from speaking to them. They very much uh, have a very broad reach, particularly in the private investor and wealth manager market, and they will be pushing this quite hard. I'm sure that's part of the reason that the board went for them. Well, interesting development. Let's move on and talk about Gresham House Strategic. This is an interesting situation where there's been a little bit of back and forth, a bit of a Barney going on. Can you uh, update us on this interesting saga? Well, it really is a bit of a Barney, actually. So um, just to remind people, Gresham House uh, announced, I think it was only last week, actually, when we discussed it, the the appointment of Harwood as their new investment manager. The issue here that Gresham House PLC is the largest shareholder in Gresham House Strategic. So Harwood, I think, had said, well, look, we're happy to take you out at, uh, at NAV. We're happy to take that stake out. Anyway, Gresham House PLC have responded and clearly, they're not very happy because they've requisitioned the board of uh, Gresham House Strategic. They came out with some statement that said all shareholders should be treated equally uh, on offered liquidity to realise their full investment at NAV. And in addition to Gresham House PLC shareholding, which is about 23% of the fund, they've received irrevocable undertakings from five of the top seven institutional shareholders. So altogether, this represents not too far off 44% of the share capital, so a substantial amount. What they're proposing at an EGM is that there's a return of cash. Any cash that's on the balance sheet today would get returned to shareholders. And thereafter, there would be a realisation process of assets over, over two years. Now, the board of Gresham House Strategic have responded. Uh, they said, well, you know, Gresham House's PLC statements included a number of material inaccuracies and do not take account of the best interests of all shareholders and they noted that actually that offer to buy their Gresham House PLC shareholding was actually made by Harvard Capital. In other words, it wasn't made by the fund itself, uh, and it was really designed to take out a substantial share overhang. Uh, and they made the point as well that the proposals to realise assets is actually inconsistent with Gresham House's own advice uh, during the strategic review, because this is a concentrated uh, portfolio. It will be quite illiquid and it will be difficult to realise. So, you know, to take a step back, you've got Tony Dalwood, who's the CEO of Gresham House PLC uh, and quite a formidable character. And on the other side, you've got Christopher Mills of Harvard, and uh, he's certainly a very experienced operator. And um, I talked to one client about this this week and said, this is this is something you'd pay good money to watch this fight. So it'll be very interesting <laughs> to see how this one develops. Yeah, so you've got two tough individuals uh, battling it out here. I mean, basically, the choice seems to be either that the board and therefore the shareholders, if they approve it, they either go with Harwood and Christopher Mills or they basically move into some kind of realisation process, which is what Gresham House now says that the trust should be doing. Is, is that right? Have I got that right? Yeah, basically, that's right. So, I, you know, th- this isn't a particularly large fund. It's worth noting. It. I mean, the assets are probably at £66 million pounds or so. So, you know, you may wonder uh, in the context of both Harwood and Gresham House BLC, is it, is it really worth it? But one suspects there's a little bit of pride at stake here as well. 
Yes, and I guess it's quite uh, brave, shall we say, for uh, Harwood to take on a trust where there's such a substantial shareholding in the, if you like, in the opposing camp. 23%. We've had some issues before when you have very large uh, holdings in investment trusts. It can be uh, quite a problem, can't it? Looking back to that Gabelli value plus plus saga, which went on, seemed to go on forever. That was (laughs) potentially made it quite difficult because you can block special resolutions and so on. No, I think that's right. And and look, to remind people, back in May, we had the process, the investment manager, Sir Gresham House PLC, requisition the board and try and get rid of the chairman at that stage. And that really, you know, everything really snowballed from there. So this is a very unusual situation. Right. Well, it will be, as you said, it will be interesting to watch unless, of course, you're a shareholder. What's been happening to the price of the shares? Should we uh, perhaps ask that? Well, that's a good point. So we have seen the discount narrow in. So it's probably trading at about a 4% discount or so at the moment. And that compares with an average of about 9% over the previous 12 months. So it would suggest that the market is thinking there's going to be some kind of liquidity event involved in all this. Yeah, very good. Let's talk about JP Morgan European Investment Trust, which has got a couple of share classes. Perhaps you could tell us about that and uh, what the board is proposing there. Yeah, and again, this was an interesting development. So just to remind people, JP Morgan European Investment Trust, as you say, it has two share classes. It has a growth leg and an income leg. I mean, this is a structure that's been in place, I think, since 2006, so over 15 years. What they've announced this week, that following a strategic review, they're looking to merge those share classes, so have a single share class. They believe that will increase the appeal of the investment trust. Effectively, the investment objective and the policy will be the same for the growth share class, However, what they're going to do is adopt an enhanced income strategy. So we, you know, enhanced dividends, I think we've talked about that before, and they will target a 4% dividend. In addition to that, they will adopt an active single-digit discount management policy. They're going to reduce the management fees, they've reduced the notice period to the investment manager, and they're going to put a performance-related tender offer on the table. So <laughs> there's a number of proposals here, pushing every button. But the idea is that, that you get this uh, consolidation and it happens by the end of this year or early early next year. Right. So that's an interesting development in a way because the twin share class has been a kind of feature of a number of JP Morgan's trusts and also they've been pioneers in enhanced income. So do you think this has um, got any implications for other trusts in their stables? I mean, you're absolutely right on the enhanced income side. I mean, JP Morgan, I'm going to say off the top of my head, about four or five of their investment trusts now have adopted this policy. And actually, they've had some quite good success. So I think we're going to come on and talk about JP Morgan Global Growth and Income in just a moment. Uh, and that's certainly the poster child for the, the policy, the strategy. And clearly, the idea is that you attract a wider audience. You, you increase the demand for the shares, and therefore, that results in the narrowing of the discount. Um, and I think it's worth noting that with the two legs of the JP Morgan European Fund, that by bringing them together, you're, you're creating a vehicle with not too far off half a billion pounds worth of assets. So it's a substantial size. Whereas at the moment, if you look at the income leg, it's got a market cap of about 130 or so million pounds. So not tiny by any stretch, but probably too small for a number of the wealth managers, for instance. And equally, even the growth leg at the moment, 260, 270 million market cap, it just feels a little bit subscale. So I think by bringing the two legs together, adopting the enhanced dividend policy even, it really gives them the scope to hopefully, in in their eyes, get a re-rating and kind of move this investment trust onto the front foot. Yeah, I mean, quite often when you see these strategic reviews, it's because there's been a sort of period of poor performance. But do you think that's been the factor here? Or is it just, uh, as you say, mainly marketing considerations that that are driving this? Yeah, so if you look at the performance, and I think it's probably worthwhile looking at the performance of the growth leg, because that's the ongoing kind of strategy here that they're adopting. Over 
a five-year period, the NAV total returns up 54%. That compares with the FTSE Europe XUK, I've got it about 58%. So just slight underperformance over that five-year period. They've done better in more recent times, so actually they've outperformed over the last year or so and not, not too far off the, the pace over, over three years. However, it's worth noting it is a very competitive peer group, so there are some you know, very strong performers in that European subsector. So BlackRock, Greater Europe, over that five-year period, up 138% as obviously uh, a very impressive return. The Bailey Gifford European Fund, uh, that's up over 100%. So that's kind of what they're up against, really. And I think it's worth noting that the JP Morgan European Fund is a kind of more mainstream play on European equities. The other names I mentioned have probably got a bit more of a growth focus. But clearly, they're hoping by getting that size and scale and putting that um, dividend policy in place, then they will attract a new raft of investors. Okay, well, let's move on then and talk about uh, JP Morgan Global Growth and Income, because this is probably uh, the sort of biggest story of the week. The fact that essentially the Scottish Investment Trust, which is a venerable institution, dates back to 1887, the year it was founded is basically going to be taken over by J.P. Morgan Global Growth and Income, or at least the board has decided to merge on certain terms with J.P. Morgan Global Growth and Income, which will remain the ongoing vehicle. So perhaps you can fill us in on the details of all that, Simon. So you're right, it is the big announcement of the week. And basically, the two respective boards have announced heads of terms for a combination between the funds. And that followed a, a strategic review by Scottish Investment Trust, I think that was originally announced back in June. As you say, that it, the combination, how it works is effectively... There's a reconstruction of Scottish Investment Trust. The assets are transferred across to JP Morgan Global Growth and Income on a formula asset value basis. So what that means in practice is that the enlarged entity will have net assets in excess of £1.2 billion, so a substantial size. And unsurprisingly, it should benefit from greater economies of scale. I mean, clearly the liquidity in the secondary market, so in terms of how many shares trade on a daily basis, but also in terms of cost efficiencies as well. And they put in place a new tiered management fee structure. And the estimate is that it should see a reduction in ongoing fees of 11 basis points. There are obviously quite a few costs involved in putting together two investment trust companies. And in the case of Scottish Investment Trust, it's a self-managed fund. So there are employees, there's pension fund responsibilities and all the rest of it. But JP Morgan Asset Management have made a significant fee contribution, I think equivalent to eight months management fee, and that will partially offset the costs. So um, this is all subject to approval from both sets of shareholders, unsurprisingly, but the expectation is that the scheme closes in the first quarter of next year. Yes, and uh, of course, the background to this is that Scottish Investment Trust, as a self-managed entity, has been following a very distinctive niche strategy, I think it's fair to say. It's very a contrarian value strategy, and that obviously hasn't worked very well over the last few years. So is this outcome, do you think, in those circumstances, a surprise or not? I don't think it's a surprise that Scottish Investment Trusts have, have decided to change direction because, as you say, the performance has been disappointing now for a period of time. I mean, Ali McKinnon, the manager, the leader of the team there, I think is, is a, a very respected individual. I think he's clearly worked very hard for shareholders for a number of years, but but sadly the returns had not come through. So I think the fact that things have moved on is not a surprise. A merger with another fund, you know, I think that's a very positive move, frankly. I think when the, this uh, review was originally announced back in, in June, we cited it as one of the things the board, Scottish Investment Trust, may want to consider. And obviously we've seen a number of mergers over the last few years. I mean, we talked last year about the merger of perpetual income and growth and Murray income, for instance, uh, to create another billion pound plus fund. 
uh, and there, there are a number of other examples as well. And I think it goes to the point that you know people do want large liquid vehicles with those kind of cost efficiencies rather than have a number of subscale funds. And to be fair, neither of the, the, the investment trusts in this case were necessarily subscale, but by putting them together, you do create something with its own momentum, own gravity. And I think that's a positive. Just tell us something about JP Morgan Global Growth and Income about its performance record. Perhaps we don't need to compare that with the Scottish Investment Trust track record. Because of its very contrarian style, has a lot of mining, gold mining companies and things like that in it, uh, if in a sense priced for a bad market outcome. But tell us what's been the track record of the JP Morgan Global Growth and Income in its sector. So the, the answer to that is that it's performed very well. So it's in the global equity income sector, and that's a reflection of the fact that it has this enhanced dividend policy. So it looks to pay 4% of NAV back to shareholders every year through quarterly dividends. So if you look at its five-year track record over the last five years in NAV total return terms, it's up 88%. And that compares with the FTSE world up about 80% or so in that period. In other words, there is an outperformance there. So it's an interesting mandate. It's effectively a high conviction portfolio between about 50 and 90 stocks. And the idea is that uh, the portfolio managers, of which there are three, look to take advantage of JP Morgan Asset Management's extensive resources in terms of their analysts. I think they've got about 80 or over 80 analysts covering global equities. And the idea is that these portfolio managers cherry pick their best ideas. So it's a strategy they've been running for a number of years. As I say, they've probably got about 55 holdings or so at the moment. And the long-term track record has been good. And it's worth noting that though they've probably got a, a slight growth bias, it's a relatively balanced approach as well. So it's not all just slanted to growth. Obviously, uh, has been the way with a number of global investment trusts. Yeah, we don't talk much about the global equity income sector because it's quite small. But uh, if I calculate this correctly, I mean, by adding the resources of Scottish Investment Trust to what it has already, it's going to um, become the second largest after uh, Murray International. And I think it has got the best performance record of all those in the sector, at least over five and 10 years, I think. So uh, it will become a significant player in that market. What's your thoughts about the global equity income sector? It's not quite as popular as the UK equity income sector is. Do you think, is there a reason for that? Or is it uh, just that the returns from the big global growth trusts have been so good that that's where all the attention has been focused mostly? You know, there's a strong argument to be made that actually equity income strategies work very well within an investment trust structure because of revenue reserves, because of the ability to pay enhanced dividends, and obviously, you've seen that over a number of years with those UK equity income names, you know, the City of London's, the Finsbury Growth and Income, and so on and so forth. Global equity income is probably not, as you mentioned, been in the limelight quite so much. I mean, Murray International has a very high profile, part of the Aberdeen stable run by Bruce Stout. And obviously, Bailey Gifford have got Scottish American, also known as Saints, uh, that's performed well over the long term as well. But yes, it's it's an area where you think that there probably should be more funds and offering a variety. But uh, it would not be a surprise, one imagines, for other funds in the global sector, which has become increasingly dominated by those very growth-focused names, to look to do something, particularly because clearly there is a need, there's a demand for investment trusts with, with attractive yields, and, and that's what those global equity names are all about. Okay, so that's been the bigger news of the week. Uh, let's just uh, move on, though, to something that looks like developing into another saga, another on running, which is going to keep us occupied for, for some weeks, and that is the developments at Third Point Investors, a ticker TPOU, which is the hedge fund investment trust 
managed by a gentleman called Dan Loeb. And uh, they've been a bit of a Barney this time, not with the board, but with the shareholders, or some of the shareholders at least. So what's been the latest uh, update there? Well, you're right. This is turning into a real battle. So we've had a couple of developments this week. We've had an open letter from a shareholder known as Metage Capital, uh, and that was one of the shareholders that were involved in the, the requisition alongside asset value investors uh, relatively recently. I mean, the letter makes for good reading, to be honest. I mean, there's a lot of very talented letter writers in the investment community. It is obvious. The letter urges others to make their views known to the board. They've questioned what type of requisition the board would need to see before it felt obliged to put it to the vote. There was a lot of talk about Dan Loeb, the manager of Third Point Investors, and uh, some of the comments that he made on a recent update. Apparently, the quote I've written down here is, the mask slipped, the tape ran out before he embarked on an extraordinary rant, and Metage urged Dan Loeb to, and this is a quote, toughen up and take some of your own medicine. Uh, and basically, they're saying, look, you've got, to, you've got to sort the discount out here. So quite colourful stuff. In addition to that, just uh, at the end of the week on Friday, the board of Third Point Investors uh, have responded to that missive and also Asset Value Investors' request for a general meeting. They pointed out there is actually a general meeting on the 1st of December to approve changes in the exchange offer uh, mechanism. But they also push back. This is now the board of third point investors. They push back against asset value investors, AVI. And again, the quote I scribbled down here is this campaign serves AVI as a means of drawing attention to itself. Uh, and they noted that asset value investors own investment trust. The Global Opportunities Fund hasn't appeared to adopt the same mechanisms and proposals that in fact AVI are proposing themselves. Yes, it really is. Uh become more like a sort of showdown in a Western than anything else, this one. Maybe a bit of cultural clash here as well. But meanwhile, I mean, you wouldn't know that this trust is actually performing rather well. So uh, <laughs> tell us about that. What's the performance, uh, recent performance of this particular trust been like and uh, what's happening to the rating? That much discussed discount. Well, that's right. I mean, you're spot on. Over the last 12 months, it's up 59% in NAV terms over five years. That's, that's up 116%. The discount's about 14, 15% or so at the moment. Uh, I mean, it has tightened in a little bit. The average over the previous 12 months is about 16%, but it has varied quite a bit over that time as well. So, yeah, I mean, certainly in performance terms, it would be hard to have a huge objection. I mean, if you just look at AVI Global Trust, which obviously the board referred to, or third point uh, referred to in their letter, that's trading on a 9% on a discount at the moment. Yeah. So a little bit of uh, Yabu sucks there. Okay, so well, we want to talk about some fundraising now. I mean, it's all happening in the investment trust sector at the moment. Let's talk first of all about an outfit called Alinda Capital Infrastructure Investments. They're trying to come to market. What are they saying? What are they offering? So they announced they're looking to IPO. They're looking to raise £350 million through their IPO in the specialist fund segment. So as the name would suggest, this is all about infrastructure again. And they're looking to invest in what they describe as core plus mid-market infrastructure uh, with an emphasis on transport and logistics, utility-related and digital infrastructure sectors. They've got a pipeline set up, which they value at about $660 million. So not too far off, £500 million sterling. And they expect to deploy capital over about a two-year period. And, and they're pretty confident they can get $200 million to work in the first three months. But they're targeting an NAV total return of between about 10 and 12% over the median term. And that's obviously as and when they get fully invested. In their first financial year, they're targeting a dividend of 3.5p, which will rise to 5p in their second financial year. 
But uh, Linda Advisors, who are the um, investment uh, managers on this one, they've been going since 2005 and they've apparently invested $12.5 billion in this asset class since then. Yes, I've never heard of Alinda, but uh, that wouldn't necessarily surprise me because it's been operating not in the public markets. This particular trust, they are investing through one of the funds, or mainly will be investing through one of the funds that Alinda already runs. Is is that right? So this is not like they're making new direct investments necessarily into infrastructure, but they're doing they're giving investors effectively a chance to share in what uh, one of their specialist funds is doing. Have I got that right? Yes, that's my understanding as well. So the investment will be through the Alinda Infrastructure Parallel Fund for Sterling LP, which is a bit of a mouthful. But I think the idea is they'll make some direct investments as well. Very good. Okay, well, that's interesting. We'll see about that because that, of course, is slightly different from uh, investing directly in infrastructure yourself. So uh, there's always issues about uh, how those investments are made and how they compare. Anyway, let's move on and talk about uh, Green Coat Renewables. They've raised some money and uh, not particularly surprising, I think, in this case. So tell us about the outcome of that one. Well, yes, it was another oversubscribed placing. They raised 165 million euros. Those new shares were issued at €1.11 and that represented a 10% premium to the NAV. Those new shares will begin to trade on the 29th of October, assuming that uh, approval is forthcoming at EGM the day before. But as we've often seen with these kind of renewable energy infrastructure plays, they will look to pay down their credit facility with those proceeds. At the moment, it's about 115 million euros drawn, but they've also got a pipeline of assets and a number of existing commitments as well. So they're talking about near-term investment opportunities in Ireland and in Europe as well for wind and solar assets. Very good. Okay, we'll talk next about another newcomer, which is hoping to launch soon, and that is something called Life Science REIT, which uh, would be interesting to hear what they're going to be doing or hoping to be doing. That's right. So they announced this week that they're looking to IPO on AIM, uh, and they're targeting an issue of 300 million shares at 100p per share. But perhaps as the name suggests, their investment objective is looking to invest primarily in a diversified, as they put it, portfolio of UK properties leased to tenants operating in the life science sector. So quite a specialist play this and quite differentiated from I think anything we've seen so far. They're targeting an NAV total return of over 10% per annum and an initial dividend yield of 4% per annum. uh, And they want to look to grow that to 5% in the early years. They've got uh, a pipeline of projects already identified, which they value about £445 million. And apparently they're under exclusivity or at least in advanced negotiations on about £300 million or so of that. The fund will be managed by Ironstone Asset Management. Uh, They are the investment advisor and that's a management team led by Simon Farnsworth. And in fact, certain members of the management team are committed to invest £3 million through the IPO. But we're going to see the prospectus quite soon and we'll get the idea of the timescale. But it's worth noting on this and the the other IPO that we already discussed that these are all deals that uh, we'll be looking to close before the end of the year. So I would imagine late November, early December. This is slightly unusual, isn't it, this one, in the sense that I guess if you're investing in a, you know, doctor's surgery or something, you're doing that because it's basically backed by secure funding. But what's so special about life science buildings? I mean, why would you single them out as a particular investment focus? And why should they give you, you know, greater or lesser returns than than other types of uh, property? Maybe we'll find out in the circular, but does that strike you as a bit odd as well? 
Well, I've got to be honest, I have no insight into this uh, at all, having not heard the pitch or seen any kind of fulsome details on this. I mean, I tend to agree with your observation. I mean, it's clearly quite specialist and quite niche. But, you know, very interesting. There has been a demand for specialist property plays this year. I mean, we've talked a lot about what, what people describe as beds and sheds. This falls into neither category, but they clearly think they've got a, a bit of a niche here. And, you know, if they can prove that it's a, a diversifier and it's got an attractive yield, then it may be the case that there will be some demand for this. But difficult to call it without seeing more details, really. Yes. Well, we're going to talk next about another one that does exactly that in a particular sector, and that is supermarket income REIT, ticker SUPR, which has been looking to raise more money, and they seem to be making a good case to people. They do indeed. And in fact, they were looking to raise, I think, £100 million, and actually that was increased to £200 million. So another strong placing here. So they've issued about 174 million new shares. That's at 115p per share. That represents a 6.5% premium to their EPRA NTA, which is the equivalent of their NAV. They've got a number of assets lined up. They were talking about four assets valued at 180 million. And in fact, I think they've got a further seven in the pipeline, uh, which are valued at over 400 million. So this is always a very important consideration, as we talked about before, because it's all very well raising the money, but you've got to get that capital to work so as not to impact on um, the existing returns. But clearly, very strong demand for this. Um, they, they talked in the announcement about um, a material scaling back exercise uh, because of the demand. And those new shares actually begin trading on Friday, so 22nd October. Okay, so let's move on then and talk about some results. So we'll put the fundraising in context. Let's kick off with JP Morgan, another JP Morgan Trust, uh, the multi-asset growth and income. They've had some interims out. Have indeed interim results for the six months to the 31st of August. Their NAV total return was actually up 9.2% in that period, and that compared with 3% for the reference index, which is LIBOR plus 4. At least it was until the 1st of March. That's now moved to a 6% per annum measured over a rolling five-year period. The share price return was actually very strong, actually up nearly 22% as the discount narrowed from nearly 13% to 2.5%. But over the period, what worked for them? Well, they had very positive stock selection in telecommunications and property. They were certainly uh, a key contributor. They've got about 68% uh, in equities at the moment. There's also uh, income is, a, is an important part of the story. And revenue return was 7.6 million in the period. And they declared two interim dividends of 1.025p per share. Okay, let's talk next about Scottish Oriental Smaller Companies, uh, ticker SST. And they've had some annual results out. That's right. Annual results for the year to the end of August. In that time, their NAV total return was up 28.4%. Now, that compared with a rise of 147 for the MSCI All Country Asia X Japan Index or 37.8% for the MSCI All Country Asia X Japan Small Cap Index. And that's not unimportant because, as the name would suggest, Scottish Oriental Smaller Companies is very much focused on the, on the smaller company names in their universe. In share price terms, they were up 28.8%. Uh, and what worked for them in the period? Well, they've got quite a large weighting to uh, India, and certainly those holdings in India were the largest contributors to performance, whereas the largest detractors were holdings in Hong Kong and South Korea. They've got quite a high weighting to consumer discretionary, that's 29% on a sector basis, and actually consumer staples, 26%. So as you might guess, they play in the consumer quite hard. 42% um, of the fund is invested in India and 19% in Indonesia and 10% in the Philippines. So 
uh, in terms of where this sits within the kind of general Asian sectors, uh, obviously that small cap focus, but very much uh, the emphasis on India and underweight China as a result. But uh, this one is being run in a very similar way for any number of years, and it's a kind of focus on family-run quality businesses. You might just remind us, uh, Simon, at this point, there have been some sector changes, haven't there, out in the Asian region, but uh, has this one been affected by that, or is it just still in its own particular subsector? Well, we've got it in the Asia-Pacific smaller company subsector, and we compare it to Aberdeen Standard Asia Focus and the Fidelity Asian Values Fund. So they're the kind of three that we group together. Certainly Scottish Oriental smaller companies out of those three names has got the weakest performance record in any of the total return terms over the last five years. It's up 22% compared with the Aberdeen Fund up 47 and the Fidelity Fund up 43 But actually, that differential is probably less pronounced over shorter time periods. And I'd suggest that that's the reflection that there is quite a value orientated approach with Scottish Oriental smaller companies, which will have been a headwind in general over the last five years. So uh, let's move on and talk about another trust. This is the Gabelli Merger Plus Plus Trust, ticker GMP, not to be confused with the one we talked about earlier. Tell us about this one. Well, they announced annual results for the year to the end of June. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 12.1%. That compared with a rise of 0.1% for three-month Treasury bills, which is their comparator index. The NAV price total return was 5.5% as the discount widened from 20% to 26%. It's worth noting with this one that they look to uh, kind of play merger arbitrage. So the emphasis here with Gabelli is the kind of catalyst event merger arbitrage strategies. It's quite a well-honed approach they've been doing for a number of years. And they made the comment that the current environment is considered highly favourable to merger arbitrage strategies, given low interest rates and the fact there's a lot of cash around. But this is a very small fund, really. I mean, it's a market cap of about £67 million. Um, It's very illiquid. And I think that's evidenced by the fact that just this week, it went from $6.05 to $9 on the back of apparently 100 shares being traded. So this is a highly illiquid fund. I think Gabelli own about just over half the share capital in existence. So good luck trying to find some shares in this one. And they'll be able to hang on to this one then, unlike the Gabelli Value Plus Plus, if they've got over half the shares, of course. We'll move on then to uh, Golden Prospect Precious Metals. They've uh, produced some interim results. They have indeed interim results for the six months to the end of June. Um, their NEV was down in that period, actually. The NEV declined by 16% as gold fell by 6% and, and their reference ETF fell by about 15% or so. But the manager, and actually the managers, I should say, so it's Keith Watson and Robert Grayford of CQS, they noted that the news flow is normally supportive of the gold price and probably going back to what you were saying earlier in terms of inflation, energy prices, and the debt ceiling, but that doesn't seem to have kind of worked in this particular period. Um, They also noted that jewellery demand has been supportive for the gold price, which I think is a a story that we've heard before, particularly from um, demand from the Chinese and Indian market. It's also worth noting that it's not just about gold, 65% in gold, uh, but they've also got quite a large weighting in silver, about 24% or so. And their expectation is that demand for silver is going to increase 8% or so year on year for 2021 due to industrial applications, including solar panels, wind turbines and semiconductors. Well, I guess we have to say this, but perhaps we should, uh, you know, put on some dark glasses and ask about the performance of this trust over time. It's been a bit of a roller coaster, I think it's fair to say. It's, it's, it's actually quite a small fund again. It's a £38 million investment trust. 
Over the last year, it's down 24% in NAV total return terms. It's up 92% over three years. It's down 2% in five-year terms. So this is quite an unusual performance record, but clearly things will fly around a little bit. Uh, it's done very well over the last month, up 18%. So um, yeah, this is a volatile one. It certainly is. Sounds something you, you might even usefully trade if you're interested in trading uh, in these uh, precious metal markets. Let's move on and talk about some property results uh, finally. We've got about four to talk through. Let's kick off with one of the ones that's been performing pretty well is AEW UK REIT. They've given a uh, third quarter NAV update. That's right, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 4.6%. Their property portfolio was valued at just short of £207 million at the end of September, and they provided some colour in terms of what was going on within that property portfolio. But I think the kind of key takeaways is that they collected in the quarter at least 89% of the rent, and that was the the quarter that commenced on the 29th of September, so I guess there's still a little bit more to go there. But actually, they noted that rent collection levels now stand at over 99% for each quarter since the onset of the pandemic. So that's probably one of the key reasons why they've done a little bit better than some of the other funds in their subsector. Yes, it's a very interesting trust, this one. I mean, it's one of the ones that always trades very well, isn't it? It obviously was affected by the market sell-off during the pandemic lockdown, but um, it's always rated pretty well, hasn't it? Yeah, that's right. So I got it on about a 4% premium or so at the moment. And it's worth noting that it's got quite high exposure to industrial assets. And clearly that served the fund well over the last few years. Uh, But even so, it also still has a good yield as well. It absolutely does. I've got it on my screen about 6.8% at the moment. And that compares with its UK commercial property peer group, probably about 4.5%. So yeah, it's an outsized yield. Okay, let's talk about BMO Commercial Property Trust, ticker BCPT, one of the bigger vehicles in the sector. Uh, What have they had to say? Well, again, it was an update, a quarterly update for the third quarter, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 5%. Um, The share price was a little bit better, actually up 7.5% as that discount narrowed in, but still quite significant. I've got the discount at the moment on about, uh, it's coming a little bit, about 18% or so. Uh, but as you say, it's a, it's quite a large fund and its portfolio is valued at $1.1 billion. Um, Retail warehouse sector uh, saw the strongest performance, perhaps unsurprisingly. Um, I think the other kind of key thing to note in this particular update is that they've actually increased their monthly dividends. They're a little bit unusual in that they pay their dividends monthly. And that was increased by 7% to 0.375p that's with effect from november and that actually represents 75 percent of the pre-covid monthly rate so they were paying 0.5p per share per month pre-covid and they've been looking slow to rebuild that up but in terms of the rent collection since the onset of the pandemic that's coming in about 92 percent or so at the moment okay and this one though doesn't offer such a good yield i mean it's one of the lowest yields in the in the sector i think is am i right about that well, on a historic basis, I've got it on 4.1%, but you've got to be a little bit careful when you look at that data because they reduced their dividend. In fact, they may have even suspended it for a period of time as well. So to this point, they are now rebuilding that dividend up as the revenue starts to come in. So it's it, it's more about looking at where that dividend can go going forward. So it would be a case of taking that 0.375p times 12, and you're going to ask me to work this out, aren't you? Times 12 and look at what that represents as a yield. But that's really what I think the, the kind of key metric should be going forward. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a very good point. That was the point I was hoping you would make. You've got to look to what's happening in the future rather than what happened over this rather unusual prior period. Okay, we'll talk about GCP Student Living. The ticker digs probably for the last time. Let's hear about their results. 
Yes, that's right. So annual results to the end of June. Uh, in that time, well, their NAV was up 13.5%. NAV total return up 15%. And the share price up uh, quite strongly, actually, up 32%. The total rental income was perhaps unsurprisingly down from 48 million in the previous financial year to 36. Uh, and they made the note that it continues to be materially adversely impacted by the pandemic. But as at the end of June, their portfolio comprised of 11 assets with over 4,000 beds uh, located primarily in and around London. And that portfolio had a valuation of 1.1 billion. So quite a substantial portfolio. And as at the 15th of October, 80% of student accommodation rooms had been booked for the 21-22 academic year, and 83% of which were occupied. I think kind of the key point here is that actually since the period ending, you know, since the end of June, they have received a cash offer, which we have talked about in podcasts gone by, and that has been recommended by the board and indeed approved by shareholders. And completions expected in coming months, though um, the competition and mergers authorities are running the rule on this one. So they, they've started a merger investigation. So that's the thing to watch there. But effectively, there's a cash bid at 213p per share. And if you look at the share price today, they're trading just a little bit under that, about 211p. Yes, I mean, they made the point that since this uh, was launched in 2013, they've uh, produced a, a shareholder total return, if it goes through, of 13.9%, which is very reasonable. Makes you wonder perhaps why they decided to accept the offer. Do you, why would you want to give up on you for doing such a good job? Yes, well... Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> okay. Target Healthcare, our last uh, trust we're going to talk about today. Target Healthcare REIT, THRL, another of these uh, specialist property investments. They've had some annual results out. That's right. Annual results to the end of June. Uh, their NAV, or EPRA NTA, I should say, was up 2.1% in the period. So there was an NAV total return of 8.8%. And that was really a reflection of the growth in the portfolio value from you know, modest yield compression and also annual rental uplifts. So the portfolio value actually increased uh, nearly 11% over the financial year. And that included a like-for-like valuation growth of about 3.8%. They made some acquisitions as well in the period. Um, so in terms of rent collection, again, an important thing to keep an eye on, that came in at 95%. Uh, and the dividends for the year were up 0.6% to 6.72p. And that was uh, 80% covered by adjusted EPRA earnings or fully covered by normal EPRA earnings. It depends how you actually calculate these things. But they have raised money more recently. So um, they raised £60 million back in March and actually £125 million um, since the end of June. So it's uh, it seems to be a popular asset class. Indeed it does. So that brings us to the end of our specific trust conversation, but uh, there's just time to mention a couple of things. First of all, if you uh, listen to the, or you're a member of the Moneymakers Circle, we've done a profile this week on Allianz Technology, uh, the uh, Allianz uh, Trust, which did exceptionally well last year and is always interesting to listen to. And I've also done a quick update with the managers of Temple Bar about what they think about the outlook for their value approach from here. I, I'll give you a quick takeaway. It's, they think it's pretty good. Of course, they would say that, but uh, they have some good uh, evidence to back that up. And I thought we might just round off there, Simon. Uh, you recently produced your uh, your latest monthly review. We might just talk about the, the fundraising phenomenon this year. I mean, it uh, has been extraordinary. I think it's uh, going to turn out to be a record year for fundraising, for secondary issuance, that is. And I wondered if you would like to comment on that, why you think that is, and uh, whether how long this can go on. 
You make a good point. So just to put some numbers around that, certainly for the first nine months of the year, £10.3 billion has been raised. That already exceeds what we saw last year. And in fact, as you mentioned, it's a record year, uh, certainly over any number of years. But it's not about uh, IPOs. I mean, there have been eight IPOs to date in the sector. They've raised £1.6 billion, And who knows, we may see a few more before the year end. But it is those um, secondary issuance, so placings, but also regular issuance as well. So of the 10.3 billion, over 3 billion has just been through regular tap issuance. So those investment trust companies that are trading on premium uh, that are quite happy to issue shares on a regular basis. And, and there'll be names that people will be familiar with, such as Smithson Investment Trust, Capital Gearing Trust, Personal Assets, uh, and so on and so forth. So it is quite impressive. And I think it shows that the sector or certainly investment trusts are managing to appeal to both retail investors through those names that are benefiting from regular issuance, but also institutional investors as well, professional investors who are looking for those infrastructure or specialist property names or some of the more esoteric asset classes uh, that we, we talk about on a regular basis. So there's been 10 billion coming into the sector. What about going out of the sector? I mean, it has obviously been a, a smaller number going out, but there have been a number of uh, there's both return of capital by existing trusts and also obviously one or two of the uh, trusts have gone out of the sector or been closed down. So again, just to put some numbers on the outflows, in terms of buybacks, it's $1.4 billion for that nine-month period. So obviously a lot less than the money issued. Uh, I mean, we have seen redemptions as well. So there's probably not, not too far off $700 million from that. But you know, let's just round it up and call it call it two billion. There's still a huge amount on a net inflow basis coming into investment trust companies. And if you look at you know where the buybacks have been this year, well, actually, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust is kind of top of the pops in terms of buybacks. As uh, although it's on a premium at this precise moment in time, there have been periods throughout this year when it has gone to a discount. They've been quite quick to buy back. But actually, if you look at the investment trusts that have been buying back, a number have been in the global sector actually. So. Names such as Scottish Investment Trust that we talked about, but also Witten, F&C and BMO Global Smaller Companies as well, all bought back quite a lot of shares. But you're always going to see flows of capital that it was ever thus. But certainly this year on a net inflow basis, it's it's in very positive territory. Yeah, the only sort of final thought I have on that is, I mean, we used to talk about investment trusts having the great advantage being that they have permanent capital, but it's not quite like that anymore, is it? Because the capital can expand and it can also reduce, as we've seen, if uh, if boards are doing their job and holding their managers to account, we do actually see that sometimes that uh, that money does flow out as well. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I think the, the difference between that and obviously an open-ended fund is that unless you've got a zero discount policy, uh, you don't have to buy back your shares. So at a times of uh, market stress, and obviously March, April last year was a good case in point, most investment trusts that would ordinarily pursue a buyback policy when their discounts widen out were quite happy to take a step back. So many investment trusts will have a policy, but it's often subject to normal market conditions. And that little bit of flexibility is, I think, quite important. Uh, the ability to take a longer term view just at those moments when, when the market is, if not responding irrationally, is certainly under stress, uh, I think is quite helpful. You're absolutely right about that. So that's all we've got time for this week. It's a pleasure to talk to you as always, Simon, and we look forward to uh, resuming the conversation next week. Thank you very much. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. 
These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.